Hello and welcome to Court Theater's Spotlight Podcast, the place where we reimagine and revive classic text. I'm Aaron Mays, your host and the theater's community programs manager. Let's get into it. Black Lives Matter. Those three words sum up the rallying cry of Ida Bell Wells Barnett, fearless anti-lynching crusader and investigative journalist. Her paper, The Memphis Free Speech and Headlight, documented both the circumstances and the lynching of black men, women, and children in the South. Lynching is an act of murder, usually by hanging, for an alleged crime and often committed without a legal trial. Sometimes lynch victims were burned or dismembered, and their body parts were kept as gruesome souvenirs. Ida B. Wells lectured throughout the United States and Europe, bringing attention to this form of domestic terrorism. She also demanded the White House protect the lives of black citizens. For Ida, this fight was not only political but personal. In 1892, her best friend Thomas Moss was shot to death, along with two other black men by a white mob in Memphis. Ida was devastated by Thomas's murder and vowed to shed light on unchecked racial violence. After her paper, The Free Speech, was burned to the ground, Ida left Memphis and eventually settled in Chicago, where she lived until her death in 1931 at the age of 68. Despite countless threats against her life, Ida would not be silenced. In her pamphlet, Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases, she exposed the hypocrisy of law enforcement who regularly ignore the wanton execution of blacks. Nicknamed the Princess of the Press, Ida demonstrated the mighty power of the pen. In 2020, she was awarded a special citation Pulitzer Prize for her outstanding and courageous reporting on the horrific and vicious violence against African Americans during the era of lynching. To learn more about Ida and her life's work, swing over to Court Theater's website for some online reading. Today, we present excerpts from Southern Horrors, which will be read by Anissa Hicks, along with an opening letter penned by famed abolitionist Frederick Douglass, read by Sheldon Brown. This selection was directed by Cheryl Lynn Bruce. Black lives continue to be snuffed out by fear and rage. As we hear Ida's words, let us remember the names of all those who have died unjustly. As she persisted, so will we. Dear Miss Wells, let me give you thanks for your faithful paper on the lynch abomination now generally practiced against colored people in the South. There has been no word equal to it in convincing power. I have spoken, but my word is feeble in comparison. You give us what you know and testify from actual knowledge. You have dealt with the facts with cool, painstaking fidelity and left those naked and uncontradicted facts to speak for themselves. Brave woman, you have done your people and mind a service which can neither be weighed nor measured. If American conscience were only half alive, if the American church and clergy were only half Christianized, if American moral sensibility were not hardened by persistent infliction of outrage and crime against colored people, a scream of horror, shame, and indignation would rise to heaven 
wherever your pamphlet shall be read. But alas, even crime has power to reproduce itself and create conditions favorable to its own existence. It sometimes seems we are deserted by earth and heaven, yet we must still think, speak and work, and trust in the power of a merciful God for final deliverance. Very truly and gratefully yours, Frederick Douglass, Cedar Hill, Anacostia, D.C., October 25, 1892. Preface. The greater part of what is contained in these pages was published in the New York Age, June 25, 1892, an explanation of the editorial which the Memphis whites considered sufficiently infamous to justify the destruction of my paper, The Free Speech. Since the appearance of that statement, requests have come from all parts of the country that exiled, the name under which it then appeared, be issued in pamphlet form. Some donations were made, but not enough for that purpose. The noble effort of the ladies of New York and Brooklyn, October 5, have enabled me to comply with this request and give the world a true, unvarnished account of the causes of lynch law in the South. This statement is not a shield for the despoiler of virtue, nor altogether a defense for the poor, blind Afro-American Samsons who suffered themselves to be betrayed by white Delilahs. It is a contribution to truth, an array of facts, the perusal of which it is hoped will stimulate this great American republic to demand that justice be done though the heavens fall. It is with no pleasure I have dipped my hands in the corruption here exposed. Somebody must show that the Afro-American race is more sinned against than sinning, and it seems to have fallen upon me to do so. The awful death roll that Judge Lynch is calling every week is appalling, not only because of the lives it takes, the rank cruelty and outrage to the victims, but because of the prejudice it fosters and the stain it places against the good name of a weak race. The Afro-American is not a bestial race. If this work can contribute in any way toward proving this, and at the same time arouse the conscience of the American people to a demand for justice to every citizen and punishment by law for the lawless, I shall feel I have done my race a service. Other considerations are of minor importance. Ida B. Wells, New York City, October 26, 1892. Self-help. In the creation of this healthier public sentiment, the Afro-American can do for himself what no one else can do for him. The world looks on with wonder that we have conceded so much and remain law-abiding under such great outrage and provocation. To Northern capital and Afro-American labor, the South owes its rehabilitation. If labor is withdrawn, capital will not remain. The Afro-American is thus the backbone of the South. 
a thorough knowledge and judicious exercise of this power in lynching localities could many times affect a bloodless revolution. The white man's dollar is his god, and to stop this will be to stop outrages in many localities. The Afro-Americans of Memphis denounced the lynching of three of their best citizens and urged and waited for the authorities to act in the matter and bring the lynchers to justice. No attempt was made to do so, and the black men left the city by thousands, bringing about great stagnation in every branch of business. Those who remained so injured the business of the streetcar company by staying off the cars that the superintendent, manager, and treasurer called personally on the editor of the free speech and asked them to urge our people to give them their patronage again. Other businessmen became alarmed over the situation, and the free speech was run away so that the colored people might be more easily controlled. A meeting of white citizens in June, three months after the lynching, passed resolutions for the first time condemning it. But they did not punish the lynchers. Every one of them was known by name because they had been selected to do the dirty work by some of the very citizens who passed these resolutions. Memphis is fast losing her black population who proclaim as they go that there is no protection for the life and property of any Afro-American citizen in Memphis who is not a slave. The Afro-American citizens of Kentucky, whose intellectual and financial improvement has been phenomenal, have never had a separate car law until now. Delegations and petitions poured into the legislature against it. Yet the bill passed and the Jim Crow car of Kentucky is a legalized institution. Will the great mass of Negroes continue to patronize the railroad? A special from Covington, Kentucky says, Covington, June 13. The railroads of the state are beginning to feel very markedly the effects of the separate coach bill recently passed by the legislature. No class of people in this state have so many and so largely attended excursions as the blacks. All these have been abandoned and regular travel is reduced to a minimum. A competent authority says the loss to the various roads will reach $1 million this year. A call to a state conference in Lexington, Kentucky last June had delegates from every county in the state. Those delegates, the ministers, teachers, heads of secret and other orders, and the head of every family should pass the word around for every member of the race in Kentucky to stay off railroads unless obliged to ride. If they did so and their advice was followed persistently, the convention would not need to petition the legislature to repeal the law or raise money to file a suit. The railroad corporations would be so affected they would, in self-defense, lobby to have the separate car law repealed. On the other hand, as long as the railroads can get Afro-American excursions, they will always have plenty of money to fight all the suits brought against them. They will be aided in so doing by the same partisan public sentiment which passed the law. White men passed the law, and white judges and juries would pass upon the suits against the law and render judgment in line with their prejudices and indifference to the greater financial power. The appeal to the white man's pocket 
has ever been more effectual than all the appeals ever made to his conscience. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is to be gained by a further sacrifice of manhood and self-respect. By the right exercise of his power as the industrial factor of the South, the Afro-American can demand and secure his rights, the punishment of lynchers, and a fair trial for accused rapists. Of the many inhuman outrages of this present year, the only case where the proposed lynching did not occur was where the men armed themselves in Jacksonville, Florida and Paducah, Kentucky and prevented it. The only times an Afro-American who was assaulted got away has been when he had a gun and used it in self-defense. The lesson this teaches, and which every Afro-American should ponder well, is that a Winchester rifle should have a place of honor and every black home, and it should be used for that protection which the law refuses to give. When the white man, who is always the aggressor, knows he runs as great a risk of biting the dust every time his Afro-American victim does, he will have greater respect for Afro-American life. The more the Afro-American yields and cringes and begs, the more he has to do so the more he is insulted, outraged, and lynched. The assertion has been substantiated throughout these pages that the press contains unreliable and doctored reports of lynchings, and one of the most necessary things for the race to do is to get these facts before the public. The people must know before they can act, and there is no educator to compare with the press. The Afro-American papers are the only ones which will print the truth, and they lack means to employ agents and detectives to get at the facts. The race must rally a mighty host to the support of their journals and thus enable them to do much in the way of investigation. A lynching occurred at Port Jarvis, New York, the first week in June. A white and colored man were implicated in the assault upon a white girl. It was charged that the white man paid the colored boy to make the assault, which he did on the public highway in broad daytime and was lynched. This too was done by parties unknown. The white man in the case still lives. He was imprisoned and promises to fight the case on trial. At the preliminary examination, it developed that he had been a suitor of the girls. She had repulsed and refused him, yet had given him money, and he had sent threatening letters demanding more. The day before this examination, she was so wrought up, she left home and wandered miles away. When found, she said she did so because she was afraid of the man's testimony. Why should she be afraid of the prisoner? Why should she yield to his demands for money if not to prevent him exposing something he knew? It seems explainable only on the hypothesis that a liaison existed between the colored boy and the girl and the white man knew of it. The press is singularly silent. Has it a motive? We owe it to ourselves to find out. 
The story comes from Larned, Kansas, October 1, that a young white lady was held at bay until daylight without alarming anyone in the house by a burly Negro who entered her room and bed. The burly Negro was promptly lynched without investigation or examination of inconsistent stories. A house was found burned down near Montgomery, Alabama, in Monroe County, October 13, a few weeks ago. Also, the burned bodies of the owners and melted piles of gold and silver. These discoveries led to the conclusion that the awful crime was not prompted by motives of robbery. The suggestion of the whites was that brutal lust was the incentive, and as there are nearly 200 Negroes living within a radius of five miles of the place, the conclusion was inevitable that some of them were the perpetrators. Upon this suggestion, probably made by the real criminal, the mob acted upon the conclusion and arrested 10 Afro-Americans, four of whom, they tell the world, confessed to the deed of murdering Richard L. Johnson and outraging his daughter, Jeanette. These four men, Burrell Jones, Moses Johnson, Jim and John Packer, none of them 25 years of age, upon this conclusion, were taken from jail, hanged, shot, and burned while yet alive on the night of October 12. The same report says Mr. Johnson was on the best of terms with his Negro tenants. The race thus outraged must find out the facts of this awful hurling of men into eternity on supposition and give them to the indifferent and apathetic country. We feel this to be a garbled report, but how can we prove it? Near Vicksburg, Mississippi, a murder was committed by a gang of burglars. Of course, it must have been done by Negroes, and Negroes were arrested for it. It is believed that two men, Smith Tooley and John Adams, belonged to a gang controlled by white men and fearing exposure. On the night of July 4, they were hanged in the courthouse yard by those interested in silencing them. Robberies since committed in the same vicinity have been known to be by white men who had their faces blackened. We strongly believe in the innocence of these murdered men, but we have no proof. No other news goes out to the world save that which stamps us as a race of cutthroats, robbers, and lustful wild beasts. So great is Southern hate and prejudice they legally hung poor little 13-year-old Mildred Brown at Columbia, South Carolina, October 7, on the circumstantial evidence that she poisoned a white infant. If her guilt had been proven unmistakably, had she been white, Mildred Brown would never have been hung. The country would have been aroused in South Carolina, disgraced forever for such a crime. The Afro-American himself did not know, as he should have known, as his journals should be in a position to have him know and act. Nothing is more definitely settled than he must act for himself. I have shown how he may employ the boycott, emigration, and the press, and I feel that by a combination of all these agencies can be effectually stamped out lynch law, that last relic of barbarism and slavery. The gods help those who help themselves.
you've just listened to Court Theater Spotlight Podcast. Today's text was read by Anissa Hicks and Sheldon Brown under the direction of Cheryl Lynn Bruce. Our stage manager was Natalie Cohen. Production manager, Kelsey Bean. Sound supervisor, Joshua McCammon. Sound design by Crystal Port. And I'm your host, Aaron Mays. The Spotlight Reading Series is made possible in part by a grant from the Joyce Foundation. To learn more about these classic writers, head over to courttheater.org. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned as we gear up for Season 2.